generative AI is here and it has changed the rules of the game. Experts like Seth Godin and Robert McKee have been very clear. The authors who are going to make it in this business are those who are writing truly amazing, knock-your-socks-off innovative stories. The bar is that high. AI will replace mediocre writers. But at some point, everybody is mediocre. So what do you do? You educate yourself. And the good news is that there's still time, but you've got to start leveling up right away. I'm Valerie Francis, and I've got a series of webinars to help you do just that. My specialty is helping authors like you put theory into practice. Understanding the tools of our trade and being able to apply them with precision is no longer an option. It's an absolute necessity. So go to valeriefrancis.ca slash webinars for more information and sign up for the notifications. You can't afford not to. This week, we're revisiting The Water Horse from Season 3. Valerie studied beginnings and endings, and I was focused on sequences. In this episode, Valerie introduces the concept of beginning hook being echoed in the ending payoff, and it's another way to consider how these two elements of storytelling work together. From a sequence perspective, this movie is a great example of understanding how the first four sequences set up the payoff for the second four sequences. We also discuss how the framing device complements our areas of study for this season. It's quite a magical episode and like all good stories, one that should be revisited many times. If you want to write stories your readers will love, there are three things you need to do. Understand storytelling principles, see how other writers have applied those principles, and then use them in your own work. Here on the Story Nerd Podcast, our goal is to demystify story theory. We'll help you with the first two steps so that you can get started with the third. My name is Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I focus on stories by, for, and about women. And I'm Melanie Hill, writer, editor, and poet. And I have a passion for spy stories, fairy tales, and master detective novels. On today's episode, Melanie pitched The Water Horse so that we can study sequences. This 2007 film was directed by Jay Russell from a screenplay by Robert Nelson Jacobs and was based on the book by Dick King Smith. Of course, there will be spoilers because we can't talk about the movie without talking about the movie. And we would love it if you could give the show a rating and review. For Apple Podcast listeners, you could do it from your phone. Go down to the show's landing page, scroll to the bottom, click the stars, and you're off to the races. Alrighty, Melanie, what's the genre of The Water Horse? Well, I think this is pretty straightforward this week. So I think the external global genre is an action-adventure story and the internal genre is worldview maturation. What do you think? I agree. Ding, 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 ding. We Woo. have a match. <laughs> 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 I really liked this movie this week. I have to say it was it was cleansing to the spirit. <laughs> it's lovely. It's a lovely story. It really is. And I'm so, you know, I'm so pleased that you love it because I really do like this story. And I I said to the kids, "Oh, we're going I'm going to watch The Water Horse this week. Do you want to watch it with me?" And of course, they're a lot older now than what they were when we first watched it. And they went, "Nah. Nah, mum." <laughs> You can, you can do that by yourself. And it's like, oh, 
but but I do love it. So I could watch this movie quite a few times. So I'm really pleased to hear that you enjoyed it and it was cleansing to your spirit as well. <laughs> well, I guess I don't have to ask why you chose it this week then. <laughs> no. So, no. So how did you get on with the sequences? Well, so uh, first of all, I, I think sequence-wise, I think it's reasonably good and it shows a couple of things that I'll um, – that we – that we touched on uh, last week with the Guardians of the Galaxy, but I'll get into that in a minute. I just, in doing the research for this episode, I found out some pretty interesting things that I that I really wanted to share, because as we mentioned in the intro, the this is this movie is based on a book by Dick King Smith, and he has written over 130 books, including the book The Sheep Pig which was turned into one of my other favourite movies, Babe. And I feel really bad that I did not know and I have not read any of Dick King Smith's books and his English and I just was blown away by a man who started to write a bit later in life. But he was prolific. To write 130 books and have them published was quite amazing. So um, he's an author that I think I'm going to try and find copies of his book and read them. I do understand also just from the synopsis of the book that the movie did some different things, which is not surprising. You know, we see that quite a lot. So I'm now really interested to do a comparison of the book in contrast to the movie, particularly because I'm starting from a point of loving the movie so much. (laughs) I'm doing the reverse. I'm doing the reverse. So instead of loving the book and watching the movie, I'm going to love the movie and see how different the book is. But i I was really amazed to find out that he was such a prolific writer. And, of course, and as I've mentioned, I really love this movie. And one of the things that I do love about it is that it was filmed in New Zealand around Queenstown's Lake Wakatipu. And this is a beautiful place. So we've been, I've been there and it's just beautiful. And you can really see the essence of the lakes around Queenstown in this movie um, and the other thing that I wanted to do was have a fairy tale this season and probably not one that was has been Disney-fied. So, you know, that's one, part of the reason why I picked it and some of the things that I really wanted to share with the audience about this movie. So when I watched this movie for the first time, I had not heard about water horses, but I had heard about Kelpies. And Kelpies are a Celtic water sprite that appear as horses. And as with most mystic creatures, there is a convoluted history as to where the stories originated from and how they have changed over centuries of retelling, depending on the region where the story keeps regenerating or is told. So please forgive me with my simplification of the Waterhorse and Kelpie legends, but the thing that I've picked up is the main difference between the two seems to be the type of water space that they occupy. Now, kelpies are associated with more turbulent types of water, such as rivers, and water horses are more associated with still deep waters like locks, which is interesting for the story, right, because Crusoe actually goes out into the ocean at the end of the film. But there are also horse-like water sprites in Norse and Welsh, Welsh mythology, and the Greek, there's also the Greek hippocampus. So in Australia, we have bunyips that inhabit waterholes, plus there's other regional Indigenous stories about good and evil water spirits. I was really interested, as I was thinking this week, 
what legends or water spirit stories do you have in Canada or in Newfoundland in particular? Honestly, I don't know about the country as a whole. So um, I have put this on my list of things to to investigate because I discover uh, I should know this and I don't. But here in Newfoundland, there's tons. So because of the history of the province, we have a lot of different stories of mythical creatures from a lot of different cultures. And it, when I'm saying mythical, mythical creatures, it's not just sea creatures, it's also uh, land creatures, lots of fairies and wood nymphs and all that kind of stuff, lots of it. In terms of sea creatures, probably the best known, I think, would be the giant squid. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about like the real giant squid that we now all know about and has been um, documented. And that is massive, of course. But the stories that I'm hearing, it's more like a kraken. <laughs> Even the word kraken scares me. <laughs> it's a great name for a monster. I don't want to tangle with anything called a kraken. <laughs> Uh, now we also have, you know, there's lots of different types of sea serpents and sirens and like all that kind of thing. There's even, I have a book that's all about mythical creatures in Newfoundland. And there's even one that is a lot like the Loch Ness Monster, although I couldn't find the name of it uh, before we recorded. And the book is called, is by Bruce Hines and it's called Here Be Dragons, Strange Creatures of Newfoundland and Labrador. So if anyone is interested in that kind of thing, I recommend that you uh, have a look at it. Oh, cool. That's great. So I think, you know, we there are lots of water legends and water sprites. And so that's something that I do love about the water horse too, because it draws on that tradition. And even if it might not be like in Newfoundland, it's more about the krakens and those sorts of things um, and, you know, large sea monsters there is a common thread and there is a spirit, a spirit in the water that people have um, latched onto and created stories about. So I think that, you know, when I talked about resonance the other day, that's something those themes of water spirits resonate through time and through history, which is very fascinating. All right. <laughs> so I better get on with my analysis. <laughs> right. So, I really liked the section in the movie where Lewis tells a bit of the story about the water horse or a bit about the legend and the eggs, but I could not find any reference to that story anywhere. So it might actually be based on local stories or it might be something that the author made up for that particular book. But I did like how that legend was incorporated into the story and then really helped with the ending and I just love getting hold of something like that and then going and doing a bit of research to see what that digs up. And the idea that the author may have invented that legend around the water horse was something that I found enchanting and also gives license for us as authors or creators to be able to do that. So to take something and put a different spin on it. And I really appreciated that in the story. Now, during my analysis this week, as I mentioned, I came across a similar technique that we saw in the Guardians of the Galaxy last week. So there are times in the water horse where the scenes and sequences use the resolution of one scene as the inciting incident for the next. And as Valerie and I discussed last week, this creates the feeling of continual escalation and it can be maintained 
at that pace or accelerated over um, the course of your story. But the difference I noticed between the water horse and the guardians of the galaxy was that the water horse had those combination scenes in quiet parts of the film. So there was still a very clear climax. Then the resolution and inciting incident occurred at the same scene. So what I'm saying is that there is an artistic choice that you can make about when you when you do that in your story. And one way is not better than the other. And I thought that that was an interesting point of contrast, the same technique but used in a different, slightly different way between these two stories. And as writers, we can replicate the pacing that we see in these stories by using similar techniques in our own writing. So I thought that was interesting. So I'm going to, like I have done for all of this season, identify what I see as the single central actions for each of the sequences. And as I do this, there's other things now that I'm finding myself thinking about as I try to identify what that single central action is. So I'm finding that my own ability to identify these points in the story getting better and better as I practice it each week. So if I went back and looked at how I did it in the first episode, I might actually now have a difference of opinion about what that is. But anyway, I, the, the point of that is that if you keep practicing these things and deliberately looking for them, you actually get better at it and more attuned to what's happening in the story. So in sequence one, I have Angus's rock is an egg that hatches. In sequence two, I've got the Royal Artillery arrive and Crusoe needs to eat. In sequence three, Crusoe moves into the house and meets Kirsty. In sequence four, we've got into the lake with Crusoe. Now, I just want to add a little bit here that in the, at this point, we see how necessary this scene is, but we also see how the stakes are now much bigger for Crusoe. He was, he's now safe from being discovered by the regiment at the house, but he's actually gone into the bigger and larger world and the, and the stakes raise because he can actually be discovered by more people. And I think that's a really point, a really significant point of escalation and a switch in this movie that we see right at the midpoint. And I really wanted to draw people's attention to that. In sequence five, we have Angus overcomes his fear of water. And another really important point in this sequence is that Angus and Crusoe discover the submarine net. And it's important because that is how the ending is starting to be set up in the second part of this story. In sequence six, we have Crusoe is blasted by the guns. And again, this is another part of the ending that is set up in this sequence. In sequence seven, we have the magic of the water horse is not make-believe. And this is the sequence where Crusoe is hunted. And we've been waiting for this scene since we saw Crusoe, but we also see how the supporting characters start to understand what's been going on with Angus and why his behaviour has changed over, well, they think his behaviour has changed or gotten a bit quirky over the course of the movie. And then in sequence eight, the final sequence, we, I've got down letting Crusoe go. Now, the water horse also uses a framing device to tell the story. 
and it's like other fairy tales such as The Princess Bride and Forrest Gump. So the framing device in The Water Horse gives us an alternative narrative to the famous photo of the Loch Ness Monster and it provides a point of view so we know who's telling the story and in this case we get a bit of insider information because it's a recount of Angus's experience with Crusoe. The present day setting at the end of the movie is where we see a young William finding an egg on the beach. This also ties back to the legend that Lewis tells Angus about the egg and about there can only be one water horse living at a time. So there's lots of different threads that get tied up and paid off in this movie and I think it's a really good example of how to set things up and then pay them off. One of the other things I noticed in The Water Horse when compared to a movie like Goodwill Hunting was that the subplots and the other story threads didn't determine the single central action for the sequences. The main story about Angus and Crusoe is at the forefront of each sequence and we saw this also in Tootsie and The Born Identity. The point I'm trying to make by identifying that is that there are many ways to include subplots in your story. They can dominate some of the sequences or they can support the main storyline or the A story. And using the three-act, eight-sequence structure and looking at who is in different scenes and what the point of conflict is for those scenes, I think could help you understand how your storylines contribute to the sequence and the act and then the whole story. On the other side, you may also see if your subplot is taking over your story, if there are too many scenes where the subplot dominates the sequences or if the subplot is more interesting than the main story. So that actually caused me to think of a question and something I wanted to explore with you, Valerie, is that I'm curious to know if you've seen any examples of where a subplot starts to take over and if so, do you think a framework like the three-act, eight-sequence structure could help fix that problem? Yes, I have. I love this question. This is great. I have absolutely found examples where a subplot has taken over, but on the fly here, I'm having trouble thinking of any of them. And I actually consider this to be a trap for novice writers or anyone who doesn't really understand what a story is and how it works. It sounds funny to say anyone who doesn't understand what a story is, but it it is a specific thing. It's not just uh, writing down a whole bunch of words on a bunch of pages and binding them together. That's not what makes a working story, a, a working novel. So this is a trap. And actually, Melanie, it's not just for subplots, and it's not just that subplots can take over, but minor characters can take over a story, or even the villain can take over the story. So when we don't know what a story is or what story it is that we are trying to tell, and when we don't take the time to get the basics in place, our manuscripts run the risk of wandering all over the place. And by basics, I mean... Who is the protagonist? What does she want and what does she need? What's standing in the way of her getting it? What happens if she doesn't get it? And of course, you know, what genre are you writing in? So in terms of your question about, do I think a framework like the three act or eight sequence structure would help? A hundred percent it will help because it forces you as the writer to articulate the spine of your story. And there's nowhere to hide in that. Too often we 
We like to say it's artistic expression or something like that. No, it's not. It's it's that you just don't understand where your story's going. <laughs> and listen, I have fallen victim to that. I am not on a soapbox here by any stretch of the imagination. I laugh, but it's at my memories of when I have written myself into these holes and had to figure out how to get back out of them. So articulating the the movement of the three-act structure or articulating what the eight sequences in your story will be, that will absolutely help you every time. Yeah, that's what I, I, I think too. But I know that I have a tendency for, I like the macro parts of story and I like macro structure So, and I'm a planner. So... <laughs> So those sorts of things do really help me. But I, I do think at a minimum and, you know, the work that you and I have done together by having a spine of some sort and whatever framework you like to use or identify that could work for you, I think is at least you're, you've got a map of some sort. You might not know exactly where you are or what you where you're going to go, but it gives you gives you something, some path to follow and you can start to eliminate all possibilities down to a couple of possibilities. So, yeah, I'm. it's good. I'm, I'm glad you we're similar in our thoughts on that. <laughs> so back to the water horse and the season. Despite the variation of how the different threads are used in, mo- in the movies we've studied so far this season, none of them have been taken over by the subplots. The closest could have been Sense and Sensibility, but the narrative question had, was based around the fate of the Dashwood women and not about one particular love story. And I don't think that there have been any examples this season of what not to do. Perhaps a dual storyline set up like Sliding Doors would be difficult, but most of the others are pretty solid examples of the ways to weave in the weave the main story and also other story threads in, in and through that story. Now, in The Water Horse, the first four sequences set up the action for the second half of the movie. And I've just identified some examples because I really think that this is a great movie where you can see the beginning sets up everything that is then paid off in the second half of the movie. And I was quite fascinated by that this week. So we have the photo of Nessie in the pub is a setup and it is carried through the story by the fishermen, Jimmy and Huey. And then we have when the artillery regiment arrive, they talk about the depth of the lake, the submarine net, and the ideal positioning for the guns. We don't see the guns or the net until the second half of the movie, but we do expect the guns will be fired and we do start to expect that the net will be raised at some point. Crusoe's ability to hide in the lake is set up by their captain's exposition about why their deployment to the north of Scotland is also so important. There's also an introduction to the sergeant who's a hunter and the cook and his dog Churchill who will play a vital role in the second half of the story. We also have Crusoe's quick growth as the catalyst for moving him into the lake and it's when Crusoe is in the lake that we see all of the setup, setups starting to pay off. Huey and Jimmy come face to face with Crusoe and it is Jimmy's and uh, Jake's photo that puts the hunter and the cook 
on the hunt for the lake monster, which then leads to the guns being used and the net being raised. And so that's an oversimplification of what happens, but I hope you understand or can see what I mean by just describing how the beginning sets up the ending. I also wanted to point out this week the way that the maturation plot was shown and realised because I think it's a really good example if you're struggling to understand how to do that. Angus's belief that his father will return home from the war is established very early. We know something's not quite right about Angus's belief, but it's not until the start of the fourth sequence that Anne tells Lewis that her husband is not coming home. Angus, however, still thinks he'll return, and this belief is shown through flashbacks in scenes with the younger Angus and his father, plus in the way Angus keeps the workshop for his father ready, and there's also the calendar where he's marking off the days until his dad returns. However, when Crusoe leaves, and he leaves for good, Angus acknowledges the fact that his father will not be coming back from the war So it's a really nice way to show how Angus matured. So it's sometimes it's difficult to articulate that internal change, even if you're writing or if you're writing a script or a story. And so I thought that that was a really simple and effective way to show a, a character's change. Anyway, other people might not agree, but it's something to I thought worthwhile pointing out in this particular story. The framing device gives us a different take on how the photo of the Loch Ness monster was taken. The events in the story and the outcome aren't surprising, but it's a beautiful story that gets the basics right with its storytelling structure. The first half build the first half builds up, and the second half pays off and this is very well done. If I had to pick some other good examples for nailing the basics of their genre and structure so far this season, I would probably choose The Born Identity, The Blair Witch Project, and The Water Horse. But they are different in their own way, And but when we look at the sequences, it shows us how and why they work. So, Valerie, how did you go this week with the beginnings and the endings of The Water Horse? I also started my notes by talking about the framing story. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> it's quite all right. I was going to be clever and say something like, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that the water horse uses the framing story. Anyway, we all know it does. Okay. So because yes. of the framing story, the in and the out that we hear, that we learned about from Stephen Pressfield is really clear. It's super clear. The in, which is the first scene, is old Angus, the the amazing Brian Cox, beginning to tell the tale of the sea monster. The last scene, which is the out, is old Angus revealing his own identity, and he finishes telling the tale of the sea monster. Now, there is a tag at the end where uh, William, the new little boy, finds the new egg. It's kind of like a a coda (laughs) at the end of the movie. But the last scene is, for my money, when... when, uh, Old Angus is finishing up his story. Now, just as a point of interest and bonus points for anyone who noticed this, the film, when we talk about the framing story, so we've got a scene at the beginning and a scene at the end, but we do cut back to Old Angus a couple of times throughout the movie. And if you notice, the cut 
back to Old Angus is done at the act breaks. In fact, just before we go into the ending payoff, the the young Taurus says, what happened to Crusoe? That's not the end, is it? And he says, no, no, it's not the end. It's the beginning of the end. (laughs) I wonder if Brian Cox laughed to himself when he read that in the script. I bet he did. (laughs) So now a framing structure as a narrative device is a whole topic unto itself. It's a form of nonlinear storytelling, which is actually a pretty advanced technique. Now, anyone who thinks that nonlinear storytelling is easy is not doing it right. (laughs) That's all I have to say about that. (laughs) I'm not trying to be mean or cranky, but just believe me when I say I spent a very long time trying to do it in the book I'm writing right now. And I nearly went mad trying it. And I kept working at it and working at it. So I learned a lot about how to do it. But in the end, I discovered a way to tell my story in a linear form. And I like that a whole lot better. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So let's look at the step in and the step out. So when I talk about the in and out, it's what Stephen Pressfield refers to. And he's talking about the opening, opening scene and the closing scene. But this step in and step out thing is what John York talks about in his book, Into the Woods. So the beginning hook is 22 minutes or thereabouts. And in the whole beginning hook, Caruso is a secret. The ending payoff is about 26 minutes. And here Caruso's existence is known by all. Um, And there's, it's mostly a big chase scene, but I'll get to that in a minute. But this is exactly what Melanie was talking about when she talked about that midpoint shift where Caruso goes into the lock. So he's not going to be discovered by the army, but now he'll be discovered by everybody else. (laughs) And he in fact is. All right. So let's look at the steps going in and the steps going out. So going in, this is the beginning hook. We have old Angus, who is unidentified at the time, beginning to tell the tale of the Loch Ness Monster to two, presumably, American tourists. They're North American. Chances are they're not Canadian because they didn't say A. And whenever it's a Canadian and not an American, they have them say A or ask for maple syrup or order bacon or something like that. (laughs) So I'm assuming they're American tourists. So that's the frame opening. (laughs) Then we have uh, Angus's fear of water. Uh, or fear of drowning. We see that. Then we have um, a scene where, or several scenes where we see Angus holding onto the memory of his father and waiting for the return of his father. Angus finds the egg on the beach. Then we have a stormy night. I'm telling you, when you start to see how many dark and stormy nights there are in movies, (laughs) you might get a little ticked off because novelists cannot use them. Filmmakers do them all the time. So we have the stormy night, and this is when Caruso is born. Now, another way to think about being born is to be freed from the egg, right? And Caruso is a very gentle soul. I mean, he's, you know, he's a bit of a scallywag, but he's not a dangerous animal at this point. And then we have the army arriving. Okay, so now the ending payoff. This is when the army decides to hunt quote-unquote, the monster. And then we have a stormy night. 
But Angus is no longer afraid of the water. He's already overcome his fear, and Melanie talked about that already. Then we have the idea of Caruso being freed again. So in the beginning hook, his birth, I'm saying, is kind of like being freed from the egg because he's confined in the egg. In the ending payoff, he's also freed from the lock. He's not being confined in the lock. He breaks free, gets over the net, and he goes out to sea. Whereas in the beginning hook, Angus was waiting for his father to return. Here in the ending payoff, he knows his father is not going to return, and he's made peace with that. Old Angus is revealed, and this is the framing story that's closed. And then we have um, that little coda that I was telling you about, which is William, this new little boy, William, finding another egg. So that tells us that poor Caruso has passed on, but now the adventure will begin again with another little boy. So the spirit of the water horse lives on, uh, but the tale of Caruso and Angus is over. So again, we see here in the beginning hook and the ending payoff, although the scenes aren't in the same order, we see the same elements recurring. So when we looked at the example of the social network that John York has in his book, Into the Woods, it was an exact mirror. One, two, three, three, two, one. Exactly like that. That's not happening in The Water Horse, and it hasn't happened in quite a number of stories that we've looked at where it hasn't been an exact mirror. So, Melanie, I'm thinking that the description of the beginning hook and the ending payoff as rhyming, we talked about this last week, I think, a couple of weeks ago, is actually a more accurate description than mirroring. But I'm wondering if we consider the beginning and the ending as being echoes of one another is maybe more specific and more descriptive still. So I think echoing is a new term. I haven't heard it anywhere else. I just kind of made it up as I was writing this, this, uh, preparing for this episode. So if I have heard it from somewhere else, I honestly can't give you a, a resource because I don't know where I might have heard it. So yes, having an exact mirror between the beginning hook and the ending payoff is entirely possible, but clearly it's not the only option. So Melanie, I'm curious to know what you think. What do you think of the word echo as a descriptor? Do you think it helps clarify anything here or am I just adding to the confusion? I don't think you're adding to the confusion. What I think we're doing is giving some options for people to choose from. I do think that there are examples where you mirror, like you said, the one, two, three, three, two, one. I think there's sometimes rhyming. So where things are similar but slightly different. And then I think there's echo which is not an exact copy and so I, I, what I'm trying to get to is I like the concepts that these words give us and the options that they provide us and it's a great way as we're analysing through this season to kind of pinpoint what we think the beginning and the ending are doing in a particular story because one thing that I've been surprised by is the variation, and um, because I was I was thinking as we were going into this season, oh, I'm really fascinated to see what Valerie finds, and I was expecting you to find more mirroring, mirroring um, examples, 
but we're not seeing that. But we are seeing things like rhyming and echoing and in some instances mirroring. So by having these descriptors, what I think we're doing is describing what we're seeing but also giving people options of a way into how they want to approach their beginnings and endings in a story. So I like that we have, you know, that we're, we're describing or you're describing things as an echo in this example. Okay, so we know that the beginning hook and the ending payoff go together as a unit. And what we're saying is that there's, so far, we know of three different ways as to how that unit looks. It can be an exact mirror where the ending payoff is, well, mirrored (laughs) to the beginning hook. Or it could be rhyming. So if you think about a poem that rhymes or words that rhyme, bat, cat, sat, hat, they're very similar, but they're not an exact mirror. Or they could echo, which means the elements are all there, but they're not presented in the same order. It's perhaps more of a thematic link, maybe. But I think in the water horse, it feels more like an echo. Because we have, even though we have a repetition of the in and the out because of the framing story, if we look at young Angus and Caruso, if we look at the elements in the beginning hook and the ending payoff for that part of the story, they feel like more of an echo of one another because the elements are still there, but they're not necessarily in the same order. Hmm. I like where we're going with this. Okay. Stay tuned. (laughs) We'll see what else we can come up with. (laughs) All right. Uh, Another concept that I've talked about this uh, season is the question and answer thing. I mentioned it a few times. I'm sorry, I can't remember which episodes. And here's what I said. The beginning of a story poses a question and the end of the story answers the question. And I want to take a few minutes right now to drill down on that concept. So the question being posed at the beginning of the story is what I call the central dramatic question, although there are other names for it. And in fact, Melanie used one earlier this episode, and I forget what she said. So this is the question that the reader or viewer is trying to answer. And they're staying with the whole story in order to find out the answer to this question that's posed in the beginning. The central dramatic question is the primary force of narrative drive for your story. So you need to make sure that it's meaty enough to support the whole story, first of all, that it's something that the reader will be interested in and will want to know the answer to. And as writers, it's our jobs, a really important part of our jobs, to make sure that we clearly indicate this central dramatic question at the beginning of the story. Now, it doesn't have to be literally stated in the book. In fact, it's much better if it isn't. Instead, the central dramatic question should be evident from the storytelling. Now, it's a whole other topic for a whole other day, uh, but there are resources out there already about it if you want to do some research. Now, this question that's posed at the beginning of the story, it's not done willy-nilly. It's not arbitrary. It's it's not that we just pick something out of thin air and plunk it into our stories. No. It's the question that has been raised by the inciting incident of our story. 
the end of a story provides an answer to that question. But again, the answer isn't just, you know, plunked into the story any old place. The answer comes in the climax of the story. So the inciting incident poses a question and the climax provides the answer. Let me give you an example. If you're writing a murder mystery, the inciting incident is the murder. And the question raised because of that inciting incident is who done it? In the climax of the murder mystery, the murderer is revealed. Ah, this is who done it. Right? The inciting incident raises the question who done it. The climax where the murderer's reveal says, this is who done it. I hope that makes sense. Okay, so how does this pan out now in The Water Horse? Well, here's my take on it. The central dramatic question posed by the story's inciting incident. Oh, and before I go on, I need to make a note here that the act level inciting incident and the story level inciting incident are not necessarily the same thing. I can feel people, I can see people's, I can hear people's eyes glazing over. (laughs) Stay with me. I am talking about the story level inciting incident. Okay. So in the water horse, the act level inciting incident is when Angus finds the egg. But with the central dramatic question thing here and the beginning and the ending being a question and answer, The story level inciting incident is when the egg hatches and the creature that comes out is an unknown and very mischievous creature. So the question then is something like, what impact will this magical creature have on the life of this lonely boy who pines for his father to return for more? All right. So here's the answer. The Nate and the answer comes in the story's climax. The nature of a story's climax has to do with the story's genre. In the crime story example I just gave, the crime is exposed in the climax. That revealing who the murderer is, that's the climax. In a love story, in the climax, the lovers will either commit to one another, if you're writing a romance, that's your happily ever after, or they'll decide to part ways. If you're writing a performance story, in the climax of the story, the opponents face off, okay? The water horse is an action story. So in the climax, what we have is the hero being at the mercy of the villain. And of course, we have Angus and Caruso at the mercy of the army and their guns. One of the things about an action story is that the hero is trying to save a victim or victims from the villain. And that's what we've got here. Angus, who is the hero, is trying to save Caruso, who is the victim from the army attack. And the army is the villain in this particular case. But to do so, Angus must overcome his fear of the water. He must learn to open up and let others into his life. And he must come to terms with the fact that his father has died. Angus loves Caruso, but he lets him go. He also loves his father, but he lets his father go. So in summary then, the central dramatic question for the water horse is, what impact will this magical creature have on the life of this lonely little boy who pines for his father to return for more? The answer then is, 
the magical creature teaches the little boy to face his fears, to trust, and to accept that his father has died. Phew. All right, Melanie, what's today's action step? Wow. I'm so pleased that we did this movie for this episode. (laughs) There's a lot of good things, I think, uh, that we've drawn out of it for everybody. Anyway, I do recommend it. And it sounds like we both had a lot of fun with it as well, which is the main thing. So my action step for this week is if you find a story that you like, then use the three-act, eight-sequence framework to identify the scenes in each sequence and look for where the subplots or the story threads are and see how the writers have used those subplots and storylines and then look at it and then use what you discover in your own work or your own writing. And that wraps it up for this week. Join us again next week when we discuss Toy Story. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. For even more information about putting story theory into practice, subscribe to my inner circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie underscore Francis. And you can now also find me on TikTok at Valerie Francis author. If you'd like to find out more about Melanie, visit melaniehill.com.au or visit her on Facebook and Twitter at Melanie Hill author. And remember, story theory does not have to be difficult. It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take it one step at a time and have fun. Mm-hmm.